don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. We got the new series off to a blistering start with Irvin Welsh last week, 30 years on from train spotting, taking us deep into the underbelly of that dark and depraved world. Today we're going somewhere a little different, Murph, okay. from the 1990s Edinburgh heroin scene to Glamour magazine. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Welcome everyone. It's Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. Hey there, Owen. Conde Nast headquarters. One World Trade Center, New York City. That's where we're heading today to find our guest, Samantha Barry, editor-in-chief of Glamour, one of the world's most prestigious publications for more than 80 years. Indeed. Samantha grew up in Balancholic in Cork, made her name in journalism first in Ireland, then at the BBC and later CNN, where she led their social media coverage of the 2016 general election. It was while working at CNN that she got a call out of the blue to go to Condé Nast Publishers and meet the boss, Anna Winter. Yes, the same Anna Winter who the movie The Devil Wears Prada is said to be loosely, loosely based, based on. on yeah, I mean, yeah. we, would, we, we could never say with any certainty, of course. She encouraged Sam to apply for what is one of the most sought after jobs in world media, despite being a total outsider in the New York fashion industry, maybe because of that. Mm. An Irish woman who'd built a reputation in broadcast news. Samantha got the gig, and in the years since, she successfully steered Glamour into the digital age, largely ending the print edition of the magazine. This is one of the great Irish success stories, and we're thrilled to have Samantha on with us today. A lot of firsts this week, Kieran. First time we've had a fashion editor on the show. Yeah. Samantha is the first Irish person in history to have this role. This is also the first time one of our guests has been a former housemate of you, Kieran Murphy. Yes. This is correct. Well, aside from the time you and Senator George Mitchell went interrailing around Europe, of course. <laughs> that was just a six week thing, yeah. though. So forget about it. And yes, myself and Samantha were in college in DCU together. And then once we both graduated, uh, I ended up living in a house with Samantha in Drumcondra, uh, underneath the shadow of lovely, Crow Park, basically, lovely. which was more fun for me than it was for her, I think, <laughs> to be fair. But uh, yeah, so we've been friends for 20 years. We started our college course in September of 2003, so it is nearly 20 years that I've She's known She's moved up in the world, Samantha. is what you're saying, Karen. It is, it's true. I think the moment that gave us all pause, all of us that were in that class pause, was when we saw photographs of Samantha at uh, George Clooney and Amal's wedding. Uh, Samantha was friends with Amal in uh, London for years before she even met George Clooney. And then we saw these photographs of uh, Samantha being helped down to a speedboat by Bill Murray. Bill Murray, yeah, 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 I remember these. (laughs) Uh, So it was at that moment that I realised, you know, I think she's kind of swimming in slightly different circles to the rest of us here. Listen, Owen. No offence taken. Bill's achieved a lot in his life. You've achieved a lot in your own way. So, I mean, I think it would be wrong of us to kind of draw juxtapositions. Glamour has been leading the way for women's magazines since 1939, as well as the fashion and style elements. It also has a history of covering heavier issues facing women in society. Sam has continued that tradition. This is all very, very impressive. But Mm. how do her sporting achievements stack up with her professional accomplishments? Because the aim of this show, as you well know, is to rank this sporting life of our guests each week and eventually to crown our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023. Murph, can you remind us of the standard set last Saturday by Irvin Welsh? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Irvin Welsh at 75 points last week. It's not the sort of tally which is going to intimidate too many people. He may have written train spotting. He may have been a massive Hibs fan. But let's face it, his all-time sporting highlight was mainly just him getting a dig upside the head. <laughs> it was like I had to go and I got punched in the face by the goalkeeper at the same time. 
we comport ourselves with great dignity on this show, really yeah. bringing the best out in our guests. I mean, <laughs> if that was as good as it got, he was blessed to get 75, to be honest. And in a previous series, we've, we've already spoken to one Cork-born New York-based woman, Maeve Higgins, who ended up with 72 points. So today's guest, Samantha Barry, has nothing whatsoever to fear. What she should be thinking about is setting a commanding lead that will cow future 2023 competitors yeah. into submission. And listeners, I also give my word that the faith you've put in me and my trusted scoring will be respected. I will not be swayed by today's guest being a former housemate and friend of mine. We would never <laughs> risk making a mockery of this highbrow slot. Got punched in the face by the goalkeeper at the same time. <laughs> All right, 75. That's the score that's being shot at today. Tweet us at Second Captains. Email editor at secondcaptains.com. We'll be speaking to Samantha Barry very shortly, but all our music today can only come from one place. Here's Sinead. I don't want to love the way I love before. I don't want to love that way no more. What have I been writing love songs for? I don't want to write them anymore. I don't want to sing from where I sang before. I don't want to sing that way no more. What have I been singing love songs for? I don't want to sing them anymore. Take Me to Church, written and performed by the incomparable, the extraordinary, the genius Sinead O'Connor. We'll have more from Sinead later on in the show. Our guest today on Second Captain Saturday has come a long way from the young kid in Ballancolic in Cork who used to concoct her own news reports during Italia 90 to deliver to an audience of her siblings and parents. In January 2018, she was appointed editor-in-chief of Glamour, one of the world's most iconic publications, only its eighth editor over more than 80 years in existence. She's been widely lauded for bringing Glamour into the digital age, but let's be honest here, she probably should be disqualified from our greatest non-sports person, sports person competition on the basis that she used to be housemates with one of our presenters. (laughs) Samantha Barry, welcome to the show. (laughs) It's like the Dublin version of Nepo Babies. Yeah. Right? Like, I lived with Murph, so that that that, that qualifies me. You've got to fancy your chances of a big score now. Come on, given your friendship with Kieran here. I don't know whether... He might actually hold that against me, to be fair. I know where the bodies are buried. How relentlessly did this man bombard you with sport during your time together? Do you know what was interesting? So we lived together in a, in a house when we were all in college together in, in DCU. And it was me and a load of lads. And I had never, my 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 dad and my brother aren't really into sports, if I'm being um, honest and outing them. Like, we never watched sports in a major way. Besides, like, you know, a big national sporting moment, like mm. the World Cup or something. And then I moved into Dublin. And I moved in with these lads. And mm. I didn't realize you could watch so much sports on a given day. <laughs> I didn't realize there were sports on every single day of the week. Yeah. You searched it out. Yeah, it was rugby. It was like they, it, it did, soccer. It never, none of it stopped. There was it just seemed never ending sport. So it was uh, baptism by fire in, yeah. in Drumcondra. We're uh, we're talking about the summer of two thousand and five in particular, and I actually was on a mission that summer to see every major match <laughs> at Crow Park. But there was actually also 
a lovely social aspect to that that I think and I hope that you remember. Our house was a little walk-up job. So you, ca- you had like six steps out the front uh, mm-hmm. to get to the front door. And so every Sunday before the game started, we'd be inundated, obviously, with match day traffic and lads trying to park yeah. their car out the front of our street. And we'd just sit on the <laughs> step there, having a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich or whatever. There was this constant conversation of, what do you think they brought up for their lunch? Like, yeah, what, yeah. Was, <laughs> what was packed? What was packed for the lunch to come for, you know, what... I know you're a big fan of ham sandwiches, yes. or for at least you were. So that hasn't changed. Still... <laughs> Many things have changed, that has not. I like the social aspect like that, you know, on the stoop watching whoever was playing, you know, and and, and their supporters coming up to Dublin like it is. It was it was kind of magic, to be fair. Well, listen, we want to get you some early points on the board because you're going to be ranking your sporting life here, Sam. So can you just confirm for us that you have swapped listening to Murph drone on about GAA matches in Drumcondra? And you now watch big NFL games with George Clooney instead. Can you confirm? Yeah, 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 of course. I'm just like, listen, I am just, I'm a big sports fan. I also, um, I sat, uh, what's it called? Courtside at a Brooklyn Nets yeah. game recently, nice. which was a, yeah, courtside is very interesting. But yes, I have, I have, I have watched an NFL game with a Clooney. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, courtside. It's, just, it's a weird juxtaposition is all I'm saying. You said he court- looks very similar. It was like looking in the mirror. <laughs> I, I, I felt it would have been wrong of me to mention it, but I'm glad that you brought it up for our listeners. Yeah. Sam, you grew up in Ballancolig in Cork. What was, life, what was life like for you as a kid there? I mean, I loved it. Again, like I, I'm very close to my brother and sister. We're like Irish triplets. Um, so we're very close to each other. We all grew up, went to Skullbarra, went to Ballancolig Community School. Didn't Was not a sports person in school, like definitely trying to get out of like gym class and stuff. Um, and the one time, <laughs> this is not going to, I don't think this is going to give me good points. The first time I tried to play sports, like in a, a way, it was definitely during primary school and it was Camogie. And I played one game and I broke a girl's nose oh. and I did not play again. What? You broke a girl's I nose? Hit, yeah, it sounds I, like you're getting the hang of the GAA there mm. in some respects. But yeah, I picked up is the hurl. I don't even know what to call. What's it, this, it's called. The hurl in some counties, hurly, hurly in others. Hurl is absolutely fine. Okay, I picked up the hurler, the hurley, and I was obviously very enthusiastic mm-hmm. about trying to hit the ball, the slitter, and I broke a girl's nose. Um, and that, I must have been nine or ten at the time, and I, I kind of <laughs> retired early from sports, or at least being a participant. Well, I've completed that, so uh, no, need to, <laughs> no need to continue. I've absolutely bloody nailed this sport. There's more to get into, I know, including what you're doing at the moment. But mm-hmm. one of the coolest things about your story, I think, that people can grab onto is the background you came from, because mm-hmm. people in Ireland can relate to a fairly normal background. Was there, yeah. when you look at it now, was there any indication in your childhood, anything going on that would indicate that you were going to go on to do what you've done and, and become, you know, be in the most glamorous media job in the world somewhere in your future? No, it's mad. I think about it sometimes because like I grew up in a council estate in Ballincollig, right? Like really humble, like beginnings or, um, but I loved school. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about Ireland that I talk about over here in the US that, that no matter where you are born in the socioeconomic spectrum in Ireland, you can find a love for education and our education is so good. And I know that I am so lucky to have been born in Ireland for that very reason. I think if I had been born in America with the financial situation that I was in, I don't think I'd be doing this job. I honestly don't think I'd be doing this job. And I think that definitely stays with me um, 
my parents like my mom did a lot of work from home and my dad worked in construction a lot of odd jobs but yeah like I grew up in a council estate in Ballancolic I am doing this I'm speaking to you guys from World Trade Center in New York in a job that I could not imagine doing like when I was younger like I the thoughts of being an editor-in-chief at this big American magazine it just seems it seems so foreign and just like out there but I think my parents are really supportive and I think between parents being kind of supportive of you and imagine you could do anything and then teachers backing you you you're you're in a good place and I I was very lucky and yeah I think whoever it is listening like you can do any job like I couldn't imagine could not imagine doing this job was fashion a big a big part of growing up were the magazines glamour the likes of that knocking around the house yeah no we did this thing where you'd go to the local shop and yeah I don't know if you had it in your local shop but like once the magazines were done where they hadn't sold the magazines of the month they'd rip the front cover yeah, off them yeah, and yeah, you could yeah, collect yeah, them yeah. I don't know if you got that I we, we were down there all the time <laughs> you used to do that with the and newspapers loved... as well the old mass head yeah. would go off at the end of the night yeah. and you'd be around to grab your paper yeah you get your free paper so we would definitely go down to the shop at the end of the road and we would get the magazines and I remember there was a lot of like uh, smash hits mm-hmm. I was big big one and then there was the yeah, the women's magazines like I think when I talk to my team here about you know the stories we're doing and we've got some really exciting I always think back to like when I was a teenager what were I looking to magazines to do what like the stories I was telling them and we do a lot of service journalism we're doing it around paid leave in America over here but I think about you know some at, at some stage in my life magazines were like where you were asking all the questions whether that was sex or relationship or you were finding out about the world or new music or tv or movies you were supposed to watch so yeah um that's how we got it right I think you know obviously we were the pre I'm gonna speak for all of us here we're go like right ahead iPhone <laughs> I didn't have a landline in my like house lads like I literally Did you like, no landline no landline in in the Barry household wow. no landline and I remember getting going to college in UCC in 1999 to start my degree and two things I got that first week were I got a Nokia mm-hmm. 2210 and I got my first email address and I think about the impact that both you know email and phones have on the jobs that I have done including social media at CNN like it's actually unimaginable that I had lived my that whole life absolutely until I got to UCC yeah. and I get my first mobile phone coming from a house with no landline and I get my first email because com- I, I, I know we had a computer class in 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 secondary school but like it was just messers like we didn't yeah. do anything on it and it was just messing and the fact that it has changed so dramatically by the time I went to college how the internet, digital, all of that have, have impacted the roles that I'm now in. It just blows my mind. You obviously had a passion for journalism, uh, evident fairly mm-hmm. early on. Can you tell us about these Italia 90 reports you used to put together? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think the 1990 was when I realized I wanted to be in like media or news. And there was two things that happened in 1990 that will always stand out for me. So bear in mind, it was like eight, eight, eight years eight of age, right? And two things happened that year that I was like, I, it was neither a surprise to me nor my family that I ended up being in media. One was Italian 1990 took over and I would watch with a pen and a notebook in my house with my mom and my sister, and my brother, I would watch the matches, but would indulge me at the end because I would go upstairs, I would make, write a match report about what Packy Bonner had done and how great he was or what he had saved and whatever. And I would come back down to the sitting room in Ballancolic and I would 
give my match report of the day. <laughs> and I think they just were totally indulged, particularly my parents indulged me. And the second thing was um, 1990 was the year that Margaret Thatcher resigned. And again, we were in primary school and the principal came on the loudspeaker and announced that Margaret Thatcher had resigned to a bunch of kids mm. who for some reason knew that they didn't like Margaret Thatcher because they all started shouting in celebration. <laughs> and so <laughs> right, a whole primary school, like delighting at the fact that Margaret Thatcher had stood down, the fact that the principal had gone on the loudspeaker to tell us this moment mm. in British politics. You were big Michael Heseltine fans. In, I know, yeah. <laughs> but it obviously seeped into us at home or listening to the radio or watching RTE at night that Margaret Thatcher maybe didn't like Ireland as much as uh, other politicians. And that at the age of eight, I w- we were celebrating her demise um, in Parliament. It was that they were two moments when I think back of like when kind of the, the world of news and what was happening, not just in my immediacy in Ballincollig, but like what was happening in the world around me, uh, how it impacted how I felt or what I thought yeah, so I feel like age eight, I was like on a on a destination for media. You seem to have been ambitious from an early age, Sam. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you say before that ambition is not a dirty word for a woman or shouldn't be, yeah. even though it is sometimes seen that way. Totally. I think for women, and I also think maybe Irish people, like we have this idea of notions. Like what? Notions is just... <laughs> <laughs> like it's, we have this one word put down for anybody that's thinking a little bigger <laughs> outside the box like it's actually ludicrous notions like and you know what you're saying in that so and there is this idea of like ambition being a dirty word and striving and 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 um you don't have to be an asshole about it but like you can strive for something and you can reach for the next mm. world or the next thing or the stretches we talked about earlier like i couldn't have, if I didn't have a little bit of ambition, I wouldn't I wouldn't say yes to these jobs I felt at the time, whether that was CNN or this one or jobs that probably if I took a second to think about would be like, I can't do that job. But like a little bit of ambition and a little bit of like, I'm going to stretch into that, I think has been really helpful for me. And I think the important thing is to be able to do it with kind of humor, but not self-deprecating. And I talk to women a lot about this, like and Irish people are really good at it. We're total self-deprecators, right? Like we love taking the piss out of ourselves. But in a professional sense, if you are the first narrative of who you are and the work you do, and the first thing you're doing is undermining what your abilities are, that's the narrative that's out there. And so I remember when I got this job at Glamour, it was kind of unusual for, I suppose, the American media market. There was a lot of like, who? (laughs) Who's got this job? And for me, I knew my story. I'd worked in story. I'd worked in radio in Ireland. I'd worked in TV in London, at BBC, I worked in Papua New Guinea and Pakistan and Burma and all these weird and wonderful places. And I'd worked in social media and digital at a big broadcaster like CNN. And so when the question came out of like why this news person is taking over this publishing behemoth that we'd never heard of before. Again, no executive is going to take you seriously if you're going in with like the self-deprecation of doubt. Like I had to I had to kind of back myself in a way that I didn't even feel internally where it's almost like you're ex- not a fake it till you make it because I think that's just such a throwaway comment, but yeah. like really back yourself. And even if it feels uncomfortable, if I was going into this job self-deprecating or not being a little ambitious, I would have lost to the first hurdle because then it would have been like, oh, she really doesn't know what she's doing. Those questions it was definitely occurred to me that didn't. <laughs> no, well, this is uh, something I want to get into as well. The questions that were being asked of you that you're talking about there, 
were they by members of the media doing profiles mm. reporting on this? Or are you talking about internally within Glamour that was there some resentment towards this outsider in inverted commas coming yeah. in and taking this plum job? I think it was a bit of both. I don't like I wouldn't say Glamour specifically, but in the publishing world, there had been a lot of speculation in the months leading up to the announcement, whether it was like Lena Dunham was going to take this job or an editor in another big magazine over here. And there had been a lot of speculation on the names that had circulated in American media. <laughs> My name was never mentioned, mm. which was uh, both a, a blessing, I think. Um, and so in the media world and also internally in publishing, there was a lot of like, wait a second. <laughs> not only is she not American, she's also not from publishing. So mm. like, wait, wait, tell me how this makes sense. Now it has made sense. And we're, it's been five years on the job and we now I'm not only the editor in chief of the US, but I'm a global editorial director. So helping run Glamour globally. But at the time, there was <laughs> there was a lot of surprise, and um, I'm the first line of defense. So if I wasn't sure about why I was taking the job, it, I think would have been a harder hill to climb. Yeah, and so what was your reaction then when you were reading that? Because I mean, that's not an easy position to be in. That's that's you have enough on your plate just doing the job without having to yeah. like inform everyone that I yes, I can do this. I loved it, Murph. Like I mm. like I loved it because I think there's something about. I don't know, proving people wrong that I actually get a lot of joy out of. I don't know. I saw something recently about um, making lists. Um, your list should always include a little bit of revenge. So like whatever your <laughs> list is, so I was having a little bit of like <laughs> proved you wrong or revenge mm. is not a bad thing to have. You said, though, you hinted at having your own doubts at times, maybe. Totally. Did, did they manifest early on? Were there any particular moments where you thought, I'm under pressure here or, or can I actually do this? I think there was definitely moments where, again, I came into this world that I'd never been in before, for example, like shooting covers, um, which is such a when you're in the magazine publishing world, like your covers are the most important thing you do. It's the thing you spend the most money on. It's the biggest production. It's really where you where you put your stamp out to the world, what you care about. And I think probably in the first year I looked to other people until I felt really comfortable in my own voice. So Anna Winter is my boss, who obviously is pretty good at putting the cover together, <laughs> um, historically. So um, so I would look to her for guidance. I'd look to my creative director for guidance. And I think now I feel really confident in what I want our covers to look like, in how I want to shoot them, how I want to style them. For example, when we're putting a cover together, you know, you've got to figure out what the concept is. You've got to figure out what you want them to wear. You've got to figure out what you want to say like the latest covers in the last year and um they they feel like me like for example when we shot Simone Biles and she was about to go to the Olympics I I, I really had this concept of like she's the new Americana and so in the styling of that I wanted to understand how we could take a figure like Simone Biles wrap in the American flag in a way that she felt comfortable with that didn't feel divisive for her at least and that felt like 2020 and beyond. And so for that, we, we got we, we got a special flag that we wrapped into her amazing braid. And it was a pretty iconic cover for us. So if if you'd asked me to do that cover my first year at Glamour, I, would, mm. <laughs> I wouldn't know how to go about it. But sometimes in my doubt, like I, I feel comfortable saying I don't know as well, which is, I think, where people get... Um, let themselves down if they're not sure and then they pretend they know i was very comfortable saying i'm not sure about this what's your take 
Anna Winter backed you from the start. I mean, she essentially headhunted you, really, didn't she? She she invited she you. She backed me from the start. Yeah. Yeah. She invited me to put my hat in the ring, and that that was definitely for me. I don't think I would have considered it if she hadn't. Yeah, I've I've wondered about your relationship with Anna Winter. She has this fearsome reputation, fairly or unfairly, but it seems you and her get on really well. Watching you mm-hmm. deal with people, you don't talk down to people, but you also don't talk people up either. Your your courtness and your authenticity is always clear, I think. People perhaps don't talk to her the way yeah. you in my head would talk to her. And that's maybe like a, a refreshing thing for her. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Like I I'd met her before. And I'd known her before, but in a capacity where I'd always worked at CNN and it was just, you know, um, remember, like I, I, you know, just had a meeting with Anna today. Like she is, and I don't know if this comes across, like she's got a wicked sense, like a really funny sense of humor. She's got a quirk sense of humor, I'd say. (laughs) And she, I think, appreciates people being as straightforward with her as she is with them. And Mm. I I, I do think that has been really helpful in our relationship. She's been an extreme backer of mine and has been really, really helpful in the moments where I wasn't sure I could do things and just, you know, but is also really straightforward with me when something's not working or I need to do better. You're the boss now, Sam, in this world. Yeah. You're the Anna Winter figure who everybody wants to impress. And I, yeah. I, I can imagine, honestly, I can imagine there's probably a lot of people wanting to blow a lot of smoke at times. How do you make sure that you're not getting completely changed as a person yourself? I think Irish people are very easy. You can, you can spot a plum or a mile away. And I think in our, <laughs> like you can really spot somebody like, you know, you can spot somebody that's coming at you for the wrong reasons or the intention is not a relationship there. I think that's a very easy thing to, to spot. And I think like my friends keep me grounded. My family keep me grounded. I think, um, look, there's not one part of me that is not jumping for joy and is just ecstatic about like, oh my effing God, I get to do this. Like I got to go to Dubai to see Beyonce. I get to sit front row at fashion week. I get to go to, I throw a, a lunch for the Emmys every year, for the women that are nominated. I see enough people in the world of like publishing or media or fashion that can sometimes be a bit eye-rolly or a bit like, we're so over this. I'm never going to be over it. And it, when I am over it, I shouldn't be doing it because they're like, if you're not getting, enjoying the really fun parts and there's there's hard parts to my job and there's dense parts and there's, you know, it takes up a lot of pressure. evenings and everything, yeah. pressure, a lot of pressure. But, oh, my God, am I going to enjoy the fun parts? Am I going to just delight in it? Because, like, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point otherwise? You're listening to Samantha Barry, editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine. She's today's guest on Second Captain Saturday. Guest and contestant, that is, because after the break, she's going for a title even more prestigious than editor-in-chief. We're judging Sam's sporting life after these. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. Yes, this is Second Captain Saturday with me, Owen McDevitt, and Kira Murphy. We're speaking to the editor-in-chief of Glamour, one of the world's biggest publications, Ballancolic's own, Samantha Barry. Sam, we heard how Packy Bonner influenced your love of journalism in part one. I wonder, did Sam ever mention Packy in her interview with Anna Winter? Mm. He wore this amazing <laughs> silver jersey. I actually prefer the yellow one, but either way, Owen. And you've told us how you used to sit on your front porch in Drumcondra in Dublin with your crusty old housemate here in 2005. <laughs> watching people head along to Croke Park. But will that put points on the board in your quest to become Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023? We'll come back to that in a little bit. Before we do, 
Just going back to the history of Glamour magazine that I mentioned, eight editors since 1939. It's incredibly mm. cool to have an Irish woman at the helm of such a storied media organisation. Once you got the job, were you keenly aware of that immense history yeah. and your own place within it? So for the context, it started in 1939 and it was, you know, the original magazine that Condé Nast uh, started for women, but it actually started as Glamour of Hollywood, right? And so in 1939, it started as Glamour of Hollywood and a lot of the uh, dispatches were out of uh, um, out of LA. And then as the world went to war, it quickly changed and it became its tagline, which is so progressive when you think about it now, was for the girl with the job. And so they changed in the 40s to become this magazine for working women. And it was, the you know, it's got this amazing history in America where it was like, I think one of the first magazines to really talk about women in the workplace. It was one of the first to advocate for women to be have the right to have a credit card. It was the um, it was like the first magazine in America, a mass magazine to put a black woman on the cover. It was it was also which and I have it hanging. I'm just going to look at it. It was also the place that the first place to ever pay Andy Warhol for his art. Aged 18, Gloria Steinem was an editor in large. I'm very much in awe in not only what those women before me did, um, including Ruth Whitney, who was this iconic editor who was there for 40 years, and Cindy Levy, who was there for 17 years before me, in how they fought for Roe v. Wade, and how, you know, I, I think about all of, all of the column inches that they had in the 60s and 70s fighting for female reproductive rights, and I just had a, we threw a lunch at the vice president Kamala Harris's house, and I got up uh, with Kamala, and I talked about the fact that I now run a magazine that is, again, Talking about Roe v. Wade, like those writers would turn in their grave to think that we're still fighting for this. But it does. I, I do. I think when I steep myself or I go down to the archives or I pick up old issues of Glamour, it does um, focus me on like, what's my legacy going to be and what are we fighting for? And I, I am definitely conscious of that, and especially around the, what is the advocacy journalism we can do? Um, and at the moment, we're doing a lot around paid leave. We're doing a lot around reproductive rights. Yeah, the paid leave story you've alluded to there, um, the campaign that you're mm-hmm. you're running is really interesting, I think. Can you, and I have to say, actually, even just you talking about the, uh, these issues that have been broached over the years, I got to hold my hands up, Sam, mm-hmm. and say I didn't really realise I maybe would have had a certain idea of something like yeah. Glamour and wouldn't have been aware of the substantive side of, of some of what goes on here, which I think mm-hmm. is really well encapsulated in this this paid leave story. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? So it's interesting. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that the US get right and then there's a lot of things they get wrong. And one of the places that is the most the most embarrassing, one of the most embarrassing things about the US for me is that they do not have paid leave. There's no national paid leave. And what I mean by that is there's six countries in the world, six countries in the world. Papua New Guinea, Tonga, Vanuatu and the US are among those ones that don't have paid leave. And what that actually means in reality is one in four women in America go back to work within two weeks of having a child. And if you give birth, like we actually followed eight women and we we did, we won the public interest award in America. We beat out the New Yorker. Thanks. Take that, David Remnick. Um, <laughs> I've, heard of, I've heard of those Fair. guys. And, yeah, 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 yeah. We beat them out because we did, um, we did a, a, an amazing piece of journalism around paid leave and we followed eight women in those first 28 days postpartum. And these women are bleeding. They can barely walk. The fact that in America there is no national paid leave means one in four women go back to work in America. And it's just, I think for a country that 
a lot of politicians stand up and talk about family being at the center of what they do and family values. The fact that they have not been able to pass paid leave in this in this developed country is just shocking. The, the biggest move that they made in this world was 30 years ago, Clinton managed to pass what's called the Family Medical Leave Act. And all that was, after many decades of trying, was if you left your job for 12 weeks after giving birth, they had to give it back to you. They didn't have to pay you, but they couldn't give your job up for three months. You couldn't, you'd have to go back. They took decades to get that. They passed that in 1993, Clinton did. There has been no movement since. So we've been really pushing this. We spent a lot of time in DC lobbying around this. We've done a big campaign around it. One of the suggestions on the campaign, which I quite liked, but we didn't end up getting it as a billboard, was like, have your baby in North Korea. Because you know what they have in North Korea? They have paid leave in North Korea. They do not have it in America. It was very, it's very normal for women to go back to work within three months in America. But they often work in places like corporations, like CNN or Netflix or whatever, and they get those three months paid. If you don't work in one of those jobs, you get nothing, zero. I think really embarrassing. They haven't even managed to get four weeks. Yeah. Now, this is the thing. The Around the world, in a lot of other developed countries, the debate now has moved on to paternal leave and yeah. how much you should get and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in America, they haven't even got the very basics sorted on this one. And I do. I think what's interesting is, you know, there's one woman in, the, in your piece, 28 Days. I think she's mm-hmm. back within the first week. She's working night yeah. shifts as well. You know, back after six days after giving birth. The way you convey the story I think is what's almost the most interesting part of this because your big decision was to go in there to go digital to basically cut the print Mm -hmm. edition of the magazine with all the sentimental attachment that people would probably have to that and to embrace the future it's really well I I think illustrated in this piece because you've got all amazing use of video and the women are recording voice notes. There's every type of media in there. Is that is that the way to do it now, do you think, to get the reality of their experiences across in a sort of immersive way? I think so. I think it was really important to me. Our amazing executive editor, Natasha Perlman, came in a couple of times to my office talking about paid leave. And initially it was kind of pitched as a, I would say like an old school magazine piece, right? We will follow eight women. We will do a piece on each of those women. And I think I pushed the team to be like, okay, but this is, we're not a magazine anymore. We're a digital title. And how do these women talk to their friends? And how can we capture really what they're doing? And we live in a world where like, I'm understanding what's happening in my my friend's life through like voice notes or WhatsApp messages or whatever. How can we put that into this storytelling? And so a lot of the build up to this is really, not only we needed to pick eight women that represented all of America and the different types of women and the different coverage that they had, but they had to trust us with their story. And I think that's been one of the most beautiful things to trust us with their, with their phones and their voice notes and in their homes. And um, you talked about one woman who's an amazing chef in Harlem and she was, she was, cooking within a week of giving birth and she was bleeding and there was blood clots and there was all of this stuff that was just but she could not afford not to work and she had to go back to work and so that was us was this real stark reality of showing what it means for a country like the U.S. not to have paid leave we've been with these women since before they gave birth we then obviously followed them in those 28 days later so it's nearly a year since we initially talk, talk to them and we took these mothers and these babies all to like the capital to dc we and it was so fun we had this one round table with a load of representatives and it's just politicians and babies sitting on the table and it's just the reality right like these these kids that we had followed these babies that we had followed they were turning one now but they still lived in a country where 
their brothers and sisters won't have paid leave. Have you made any headway ever at these visits to Washington? How have you presented this story? Got any progress? It, it has been put in and taken out of a lot of budgets and it always is one of the first casualties and that's the problem. I think when you're advocating for certain things, when you have a really vocal uh, group advocating for certain moments in a budget, um, when it becomes a campaign issue, it stays in the budget. So for us, it's making it a campaign issue. It's making sure that representatives are being asked their stance constantly and it's making sure that eventually it will be put in the budget and not taken out in the negotiation. You've made it clear, Sam, that now this is getting to the crunch time here because we're going to be ranking your sporting life very soon, right? You've made it clear that that you weren't particularly sporting. Can you just elaborate on this camogie story? Because I'm just unclear as to how you ended up busting this poor girl's nose. So I basically went to, I went to, uh, over-enthusiastically went to hit the ball and I smashed it into her face, the (laughs) hurt. So you missed the ball, hit her. I missed the ball, I hit her face. It was a direct hit on the the facial I left the field. I was never... I never played camogie again. Now, left the field where you sent off or did you just leave in horror? What you I done? think I definitely cried and I was probably sent off, but I was probably running away as well at the same time. <laughs> well, are you back? Has this guard you for life or are you back playing sport at this point? I'm back. I, <laughs> I'm back playing sports in um, one, the biggest losing softball team in all of New York City. Yes. And I will tell you, they're called the Glamrocks. And we, we started it a couple of years ago. So it's the Glamorous Shamrocks. There's a lot of Irish people on, okay, on the gotcha. team. Yeah, Irish... Yeah. Australian, um, some Americans, but they're really the ringers. Most people in this team had never played softball before. Okay. Maybe a game of rounders here and there, but no idea of the rules of softball. We're in a league in America, in New York. It plays in Central Park. It's It sounds like something out of Nora Ephron movie. Like it's totally picturesque. We are the best dressed, biggest losers the softball <laughs> league has <laughs> has ever seen. I helped design the outfit. The outfits are next level. Like it they is are beautiful. Yankees I've seen them. Yeah. Meets, meets the league of their own. Like I, we put a <laughs> lot of money, effort, sponsorship. We got sponsored. Nobody gets sponsored from these. We got sponsorship. <laughs> we take it seriously. We still are astronomical losers. We did not know what we were doing. Nobody could hit a ball. There yeah, was no game where the mercy rule wasn't employed, which means basically if you're losing by so much they actually call the game early. That's the mer- <laughs> like the mercy oh, rule was bad. Sam, come on, um, what we did, we there was marginal improvements in the Glamrock season two. Okay. I became the position I found that I am best in is catcher, which is basically shit talker. So right? the catcher you, just explain it. The catcher stands behind the person batting. So the yeah, pitcher throws the, the ball and you're on the, the same pitch, team as yeah. the pitcher trying to catch the ball. You're on the, the same team through. as the pitcher. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of supposed to be like kneeling down, like crunching. You don't have to crunch that much. That's hard on your knees. Very hard. <laughs> you have to be behind. And the catcher's, uh, this is my take on softball in America. The catcher's biggest role is shit talking the opponents. <laughs> okay. I did it so much one week that a guy came up with, he had obviously bought some gloves. I don't know why. Some <laughs> gloves for his batting. And I destroyed this poor man that he actually, by the third time, came out to bat without these gloves that he had like... <laughs> He'd um, taken them off. Yeah, he buried I them. They, I think the Americans are... Um, they don't know, take take a ribbon so, so well. So like catcher, I was very good at. Unbelievable. I love the fact that you're turning up in this over elaborate gear and then you're having to go to a lad for wearing a glove, which I would have thought is more commensurate with <laughs> yeah, what we, yeah, we'd yeah. expect from this sport. Totally conducive. Yeah. Uh, uh, I hear the Kerry icon Donny O'Sullivan from CNN is on your team, Sam. This man has covered the storming of the capital, but how does he fare in the heat of battle and the sledging that seems to be going on here? 
you know what he's it's he, I like Donny I hired to CNN so that's probably my claim to fame in Ireland um, <laughs> uh, yeah that's that's what I'm best you know known Donny Donny um Donny's parents actually came to watch us one time which is again oh, wow. like a very yeah. beautiful thing these um these amazing Kerry parents coming to watch this softball mm. team in America. He's good. He's definitely hit the ball a couple of times. I did a couple, maybe. I, like, <laughs> I Lads, we still haven't won, won a game. If we actually won, like, I don't even know what would happen. You're amazing. coming back on the show. I've seen, I, I've seen a video you sent on, Sam, and I'm very impressed with your passive style as a, when you're batting. It's sort of let the pitcher make some mistakes and then I, I might be able to walk to first base. <laughs> well, listen, wow, like. give us your highlight of this sporting career, the highlight of your, your I did have a home run and I call ah. it a home run but I basically got to home once so like can we call that a home run I, that's what I'm calling I mean you're it. talking to two Irish guys we don't know I mean if you say you got a home run my Sam... glam rocks home run in Central Park on Friday night about two months ago is my sporting highlight well it did inspire your team to victory if you've told us that you have yet mm. to win no, a game no. it, it maybe inspired us to less of a loss Hell of a highlight there. Hell of a highlight. <laughs> this is a difficult moment for all concerned here because long held friendships are on the line as Murph ranks. Let's just do it, Murph. Okay, Murph, Murph ranks. Could be the last time you talk to Sam. This sporting life of his former housemate, the worldwide editor of Glamour, Samantha Barry. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody. Okay, Samantha, as Owen says, there is no room for sentiment here. It falls to me to cold-heartedly assess your all-time sporting highlight, which you've just described. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100. See if you can overtake Irvin Welch's 75 points from last week and assume top spot in the race to be crowned our non-sports person, sports person for 2023. Let's just talk through some of the main point getters we've discussed thus far. You let me bore you to tears about sport for two whole years while I shared a house with you. No other competitor in the history of this slot has suffered more. That's got to be worth a few points. Your adorable Italian anti-match reports, beautiful. And your home run success for your otherwise gutless and spineless softball team is the sort of leadership that you specialised in throughout your professional career. What the hell do your teammates think sport's about? Like this show, it's not about entertainment, it's about winning. In fact, your excellence in a losing cause reminds me of no one more than Irish captain Katie McCabe last Wednesday afternoon, whose dedication to the cause and unstinting leadership is straight out of the Barry playbook. I'll have to deduct some points for your violent and cowardly behaviour on the camogie fields of Cork, uh, your relentless sledging during softball games, is also a major black mark and let's face it softball itself is kind of shite but there's still plenty here I'm also acutely aware that I may well be accused of bias horribly conflicted as I am but I have to be led by the numbers and the numbers suggest a score of 78 points in total enough to give you the lead at the quarter way stage of this summer's action Samantha Barry this has been your sporting life you're top of the tree baby this is the greatest joy of my life. I thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks to my family. Thank you to all of the Glamour team. Play the music. Play somebody off, somebody play, play the off. music. Play her off. It's too much. It's too much. Sam, thank you so much. Really thank appreciate you so it. much. Round of applause, Round of applause please. Thank, thank you. Thanks, Mike. That was so fun. This is the last day.
just brilliant. That's last day of our acquaintance by Sinead O'Connor from I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got as the country still tries to come to terms with the passing of one of our greatest ever artists. Murph, on last week's show, you spoke about awkward teenage Murph mm. and his train spotting poster. But you told us on the second Captain's podcast this week that the first gig that same awkward teenage Murph went to see was Sinead live in Galway. Yeah, I was 15 years old. I went to see her in the Big Top in Galway during the Arts Festival in 1997. And honestly, I can't remember who brought me. I, I presume it was one of my three older brothers. Uh, I can't remember walking into the tent. I can't remember walking out of the tent. All I can remember is uh, the voice, obviously, which, you know, if you're within a mile of it, it's a privilege. But I also remember just thinking she was the most insanely beautiful person I'd ever seen uh, in the flesh. The power that she had being on stage by herself. I was just a privilege to be able to say that I saw her live once. And it's an amazing thing that it was my first ever gig. But I'm sure there's hundreds and thousands of people listening now who saw her dozens of times live. And just what a privilege. Like Just what a privilege to have been alive at the same time as her. It's it's been an emotional week, I think, for everyone. I have to applaud you. In fairness, I thought because of your friendship with Samantha, you might go the other way. You might overcompensate, you know, like yeah. the teacher who teaches their kid and is overly harsh on them. But you correctly gave her some reasonably high marks for her glittering Listen, softball career. On, I'm led by the numbers. How many more times do I have to say I this? Know, the integrity of your scoring system remains intact. Beyond reproach. Sam mentioned us meeting her in New York recently. And she told us that night about a taxi driver she was chatting to on a recent trip home. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, she uh, landed in Dublin airport. Taxi man uh, picks her up. They fall to talking. About 20 minutes in, the taxi man turns around to her and says, you know the show you should be on now? You should be on this second captain's show on, yes. on Radio 1. So, what a show. What thank a you very much, taxi man. Very much so. Thanks to the taxi drivers of Ireland for helping us book our guests. If any of you happen to get Paul Meskel in the cab over next oh, here, Don't just, be shy now. Just give him a nudge in our direction. We've been laughing at that lad for quite a long time. <laughs> Thanks again to the brilliant Samantha Barry. We're back same time next week and every Saturday at one o'clock for the next couple of months. This has been a Second Captain's production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan and RTE. Don't forget, you can listen to our podcast during the week on secondcaptains.com. All Ireland football final coverage and Ireland versus Nigeria in the Women's World Cup coming up on Monday. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 right now for Saturday Sport. Thanks, Murph. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Second captain, first captain, whatever. <laughs>